All right, so if you're here this morning and you're sort of new to Wellspring or haven't been with us recently, we're in the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. So we've been on this journey for a while. Now, a little bit of context I think is important at this point, so I'm just going to do a little doodle up here just to kind of set the stage a bit. All right, so we're going to talk about, we're going to start with Thursday, right? So Thursday evening, there is a Passover dinner. All right, you have some bread, you have some wine. This is p.m. We don't know exactly what happens in the morning. After they have dinner, right, they go to, you're going to see an epic tree in a second. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's an arrest, right? Jesus is arrested, and at this point, all of the disciples totally bail on Jesus. What happens, right? He is arrested Friday morning. He is crucified. He's tortured, humiliated, and crucified. Saturday comes around. This is the seventh day. This is the day of rest in Genesis, right? This is seventh day. What does God do? He rests. The Jewish people, the Hebrew people, enter into the rest of God this day, though for the disciples on this Saturday, it is a day of mourning. It is a day that God is dead. Sunday morning, they wake up, or at least Mary Magdalene does. John says it is the first day. What we learned last week is the first day of the new creation. And what she finds is a, uh, a tomb that is empty. Right? She runs back. This happens in the morning. She runs back, tells the disciples, the Lord is risen. Right? She shares her story. Where we pick up today is the evening of the first day of the new creation. We pick up on Sunday, Sunday night. Now, before we dive into this text, I want to I set a little bit of a frame, because I don't know what your experience was of Jesus, or is or was. I don't know. For me, I had this profound experience of God's grace in college. I wasn't looking for God. He found me. This is just overwhelming experience of God's grace that, like, fully shifted my life. Just this overwhelming sense of the kindness, mercy, and grace of God, and it was kind of this thing of, like, holy cow, I cannot believe how amazing God is. Now, I didn't grow up in the church, so then I started connecting with Christians, and what I started to pick up on pretty quickly is that there was this subterranean pressure in the system. And so while it started as grace for me, I felt this pressure that now, yeah, great, God is gracious, but now I really needed to get my act together and perform. And what I learned quickly in those first few years is that it is better to hide the areas of brokenness, struggle, doubt, and insecurity, fear in my life than to actually let the Christians that I was around know about it. Because what I learned quickly is that while they talked about being saved by grace, practically, get your act together was the message I heard. And what I want to lean into this morning is this dynamic of what do we do in the present when we have anxiety, when we have fear, when we have doubts? What do we do? 
There's this uh, author, A.J. Swoboda. He says this, We've created a church culture where we are permitted to struggle and doubt in the far distant past, but not in the dangerous present. It's our statue of limitations on doubting and struggle. It's acceptable as long as it happened a long time ago. Right? So what you can do is say, oh man, five years ago, I had the hardest time I was struggling, but then God showed up. Right? And then you get to share everyone about how God changed you, showed up, and you're like, I'm awesome now though. How are you doing now? I'm good. Anyone relate to that at all? What I want to lean into this morning is what do we do if our struggle, our doubt, our failure isn't in the far distant past, but is today? If when you actually walked in the door, you didn't feel like you had your act together. You didn't feel like you were rocking it in your faith, then what? I think these are some of the questions that John is going to get at in John 20 uh, as we lean in. I'm going to divide it into three parts. This is how part one begins. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So context, right? We did this little doodle outline, right? They travel with Jesus for about three years. On Thursday night, they're in this garden. The guards are walking up. They feel it. They can hear this battalion of guards walking up, right? It's dark out. They show up. John 15.50 says this, Then everyone deserted him and fled. The one they had put all their hopes on in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his moment of need, they bail. Think of one person in your life in this moment that you love. Spouse, child, friend. Now imagine them in their moment of need, and the only thing you do is run. That is the disciples' experience. Then they know Jesus is killed, tortured, humiliated. Right? Peter even denies Jesus three times with the opportunity to say, yeah, yeah, I know the man. He's like, no, I don't. Right? That's Friday. Then they go into Saturday. Now they're sitting in this emotion of having betrayed the one that they had placed all their hope on. I don't think we can appreciate John 2020 unless we, or John 20, unless we enter into that feeling of relational abandonment. Unless we enter into the experience of fear that they had that they were going to get arrested by the Romans too. They are fearing for their lives. Right? So then when you get into verse 19 and it says, because of fear, they had locked themselves in this room. Mary Magdalene has come to them in the morning saying, Jesus is written, and they're like, I don't know about that. Click. They're terrified. They are terrified. 
Now it's at this moment in their relational abandonment of Jesus, at this moment of terror that the Romans are going to come in and do to them what they did to him, Jesus walks in the room and says, peace be with you. Shalom to you. He doesn't walk in the room and be like, what did you guys just do? You just bailed on me. There is no judgment. There is no resentment. I think I'd be a little resentful. Jesus is not resentful. He is not judging. The first thing he says to these people that just abandoned him is peace. And not peace as the absence of conflict, but peace as the shalom of God. The wholeness of the kingdom. That be on you. And it's in this moment that I think their fear is also mingled with this sense of doubt. And the reason I say that is this. Verse 19 is followed by Jesus saying, Hey guys, look. Do you see my sides? Do you see my hands? Look, it's me. Because the witness of Mary Magdalene wasn't quite enough. So he's like, hey guys, look. It really is me. Because not only are they trapped in a tomb of fear, they are also trapped in their own doubt of whether Jesus is actually risen from the grave. And John says to us, in this moment, their fear and doubt is transformed into joy. I think there's a few levels here. There's probably joy that it's not Romans knocking on their door, kicking the door down. I think there's joy that Jesus could have come in with bitter, resentful judgment, but he offered them peace. And then a third level, that the one they had placed all their hope on is risen from the grave and he is now with them. The hope that they were trusting in is now alive and standing with them. They are overjoyed. And what we see is that the words that Jesus says on that Thursday supper, he says, soon your grief will turn into joy. And now we're seeing that the words he uttered at that supper on Thursday night are already proving true on Sunday evening. And then we start to transition into 21 and 22. Now, I want to just, and this is where Jesus says, you know, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And I just want to be overtly clear for a second. The same people that are doubting and fearful that are in that room, they are the same people that Jesus is sending to be his witnesses in the world. For some reason, I think we read the New Testament and assume that the first century church like, has their act together and we don't. It's like, if only our act could be as together as theirs. But what we see in John is that they don't have their act together. They're terrified. And it's the same terrified, doubtful people that he sends as his witnesses in the world. Now, a quick word about Greek, which I know you love. So there's one thing in Greek, there's a tense that's unique. It's called the perfect tense. What it means is that there's a completed action in the past that has ongoing significance in the present. So imagine you throw a rock into a clear pool. You throw the rock, it's done, but then there's those undulations of water that keep going. The perfect tense is kind of like that. Now that is exactly what Jesus is saying, using the perfect tense when he talks about the Father has sent me. I think sometimes we think about it this way, and this is incorrect. Sometimes we think about it as like, Jesus 
starts the race, he has his baton, he runs. He sees you and me, he's like, take the baton, your turn. And then Jesus stops, and now we're on our own running. That is exactly not what the Greek says. What the Greek says is this, Jesus is running. He gets to us and he says, run with me. You're going to continue on the mission that I am going to continue leading into the future. It's not like he says, do what you want. Take the mission in whatever direction you want. Go for it. No, the mission of Jesus continues to be led by Jesus that we get to be a part of. Just as the Father sent Jesus and the Father's still a part of that mission, so we are included in the mission of Jesus. Now that adds sort of layers here as we start to talk about Jesus breathing on them the Holy Spirit. Right? This is verse 22. He breathes on them to give them the Holy Spirit that then becomes the one running with us into the world. The Holy Spirit is our sort of God's presence with us as we continue the mission of Jesus in everyday life. This is clearly an echo right back to Genesis 2. If you were here last week, we talked about how right after the resurrection, right, Sunday morning, there's all these echoes John is making to Genesis. This is another one. He breathes his spirit on them. Well, what happens in the book of Genesis? God breathes into the earth. The earth becomes a human, so God's life brings new life to the dirt. In the same way, he's bringing new, breathing new kingdom life to the disciples in their fear and in their doubt as he sends them into the world to continue his mission. Which then translates really closely into verse 23. Then Jesus says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now again, Jesus is not saying, hey, make up the rules. You want to forgive someone? They give you 20 bucks, give it to them. This is not an arbitrary thing. It's not like they get to offer new forgiveness that they get to decide on. No, they are continuing the mission of Jesus. Central to the mission of Jesus is the forgiveness of God. They don't get to say, oh, you earned it. Forgive it. Oh, you got some money? Okay, pay for it. All right, now you're forgiven. No, it is always based, just as it was based in Jesus' time, on trusting Jesus. Which then brings us to part two. So you have this group of people that are fearful, doubtful. Jesus comes into the midst of them, breathes his peace on them, sends them to be the witnesses in the world. Verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting. Believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. All right, so again, let's go back to Thomas's experience. Thomas goes, let's say, 
out, he's like tired of being trapped in the room, this fearful tomb-like room, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to grab a falafel. Maybe a glass of Galilean wine. He's like, I'm going to go. He's out on the streets. During this time, Jesus shows up. Now he comes back, and the disciples are having this like faith conga line thing. They're like, oh, you know, join in. This is amazing. He's alive. And Thomas is like, wait, what just happened? Now, I want you to imagine yourself in this moment. Because I think most of us, whether we believed it or not, whether we felt it or not, we would sort of join the conga line because it's just socially super awkward at that moment to be like, no. And so I really appreciate in this moment, actually, Thomas's authenticity and honesty. I think it actually requires a fair amount of courage in that moment when everyone else is like, yes, then he's like, hmm. And he even says, right, like, you know what? I'm glad you saw Jesus' wound. I'd need to touch it. So you have this moment. Thomas misses this moment, right? He misses this cool thing where Jesus shows up. He breathes on them. And he's like, yeah, you know what? I want a little evidence. And I actually appreciate that, this about Thomas too. He isn't just like, well, if you say so, He's like, he wants to experience it himself. He wants a little bit of that sense of like, I want to see God too. He also makes a totally unreasonable demand of God. But I appreciate Thomas's honesty in that moment and his desire to see for himself. Now, one of the things that's interesting is we don't know how Thomas spends the next six days. It's sort of this gap. Like, I sort of imagine maybe, you know, the disciples, they're like having these like celebratory prayer gatherings and Thomas is like pouting in the corner maybe. Or you imagine they're like having these feasts. They're excited. And Thomas is like, you know, unsure how to participate. Or maybe he's thoughtful in dialogue. I don't know. We have no idea. Maybe he's a cheerful doubter. I don't know. We don't know how he spends that next week. But we do know what happens the next Sunday evening. The doors are locked. We don't know why. We don't know if this is like the noisy, annoying neighbor keeps knocking or if they're still afraid of Rome. And it's in this moment that Jesus appears and he offers the same greeting to the whole group, now including Thomas, peace be with you. Shalom be with you. And then he looks directly at Thomas. Thomas, here I am. Do you want to put your finger in my hand? Do you want to touch my side? Because even though Thomas wasn't at the gathering that previous Sunday, Jesus clearly was there, or at least there enough to hear what Thomas said. Even though Thomas didn't see him, Jesus heard Thomas. And he shows up. In this moment of Thomas's most profound doubt, he reveals himself to him. Now, we know that Jesus sort of offers him, hey, touch, you know. We don't know what Thomas does. We don't know if he stands there. We don't know if he actually touches. John doesn't tell us. All we know is the invitation of God. And then, I think this is super important, 
This is what he says. He says, my Lord and my God. Those two words, those three words are actually super important. Right? A Lord is like a king. This is one that he is going to submit his life to. Rather than taking control, he's going to give control to God to direct his life. And then he's God. My Lord and my God. He is the one who deserves all worship. He is the one who deserves all honor and praise. And it's not just some abstract theological uh, affirmation. Lord and God, you know. My Lord, my God. There is a personal ownership in the midst of hearing other people's stories. Now Thomas has an encounter with the risen God that gives him a personal confession of my Lord, my God. I will worship you. I will submit my life to your reign and rule. And Jesus says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Happy are those, is a paraphrase, happy are those who without having Thomas's experience share Thomas's faith. I think that's an N.T. Wright quote. Which then translates or brings us to part three. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is telling us very clearly at the end of his gospel, hey guys, this is my goal. I want you to believe. But a little nuance actually I think is really important at this moment. Have you ever had that experience where you maybe have doubts or you're struggling and you're by yourself or maybe you're on a walk and you start beating yourself up for not believing enough? Like, Tony, what is your problem? Why can't you just believe more? If only you believed more, then like, you know what? You wouldn't have these struggles. You wouldn't have these doubts. You wouldn't have these worries. And in this moment, belief can become about certainty. As long as I know the right answers. If only I believed more, everything would be okay. As if the gospel was actually about our, us mustering up the belief that we could like, you know, pump our faith balloon more, like we'd be okay. What we see in the New Testament is that that is not the definition of belief. Belief is trust. Right? Belief is fundamentally relational. It is about in the ups and downs of fear, in the ups and downs of doubt, in the ups and downs that we are willing to stick it out with God. Right? Faith, if faith is determined as certainty, isn't it odd then that John would almost end his gospel in chapter 20 with a bunch of people that have no certainty? Right? You have, if you're sort of, my, my wife really loves character transformation in books, like character development. Wouldn't it be odd if you're an author to end with these fearful doubters if your entire goal is to get people to believe and be, have no, no fear and no doubt? No, because instead, John's goal is not for us to never have fears and doubts. 
John's goal is that in the midst of fear and doubt, that God will be faithful to us. And that we are trusting that God in the ups and downs, that God will not leave or abandon or forsake us. Right? That's what we see here. Right? In the midst of their doubt, what does God do? Show up. In the midst of their fear, what does he do? Shows up because he will never leave nor abandon us. But John wants us to be a trusting people that trust in the heart and character of God. Despite the ups and downs of life. And we see this too because what does John say is the outcome of the faith? Why does he care about faith? That we might experience life in Jesus. Right, this goes back now to John 10. If you remember, Jesus says he is the good shepherd. And then he says, what does he do? Lay his life down for his sheep. Right? Friday. What does he do? He dies on a cross. What does he say in John 10? That they may experience life and life abundantly. That his hope in relationship with us is that we experience the abundant life of God. Not that we become people that are like, oh yeah, okay, I know the answer. He wants to form us into a people that trust him. All right, so then that's sort of the story. That's sort of the frame. The question then is, what is this, how does this impact your daily life, my daily life? Not in seminary, not, you know, when you're reading the cool book, but when you're actually in that moment of doubt. You're actually in that moment of struggle. Now what? Cool idea. Give me something to do. I think one of the dynamics that I see in my own personal life is this sort of play between hiding and grace. One of the things I think most of us do, I certainly do, is that when I experience doubt, when I'm in that struggle, when I experience fear, what I often do is seek comfort through Netflix and Ben and Jerry's binges. Right? Because truthfully, it is easier for me to binge on Netflix and Ben and Jerry's than to own the fact that I have doubt, that I'm afraid, that I'm worried, that I'm anxious. So rather than owning it personally, I seek comfort in other things. And in so doing, what I do is I hide from myself and I hide from God and I miss out on God's heart, which is to meet me in that place of struggle. That God actually wants to meet us in the fear, meet us in the doubt. But so often in this moment, we're so conditioned to push away those things. And then we actually limit our experience of God's grace in everyday life. God actually wants to draw near to us. But in order to do that, we have to be willing to face what is actually going on in us. We have to not hide. We have to open ourselves up. There's this great quote um, by this guy named Austin Fisher. He says this, People don't abandon faith because they have doubts. People abandon faith because they think they are not allowed to have doubts. And I would add to that that in the point of doubt, if we aren't willing to invite God in, it's just sort of we end up only seeing our doubts. I would invite you this morning and this week, go for a walk. 
take a walk and on that walk, just say, God, is there anything I am hiding from you and myself that you want to meet me in? It could be a 10-minute walk. Just walk slow. This isn't a power walk, right? Just walk slow and say, God, is there anything I'm hiding? And be open. Two, there's also this relationship between discounting and the invitation of God, or discounting and inviting. I often uh, experience, I've, I've experienced this as a pastor, I've experienced this in ministry, so both personally and sort of among you, that so often we discount ourselves because of our fears, our doubts, our worries, our anxieties, and our struggles. I, I can't have a significant role in God's work in the kingdom. I, I struggle. I doubt. But what do we see in this text? God is the one who calls the fearful doubters to be his witnesses in the world. If you go to Matthew 28, which is sort of the iconic Great Commission passage, go make disciples of all nations. What does it start with? They see Jesus, they worship him, and some doubt. That same group, the doubters and the worshipers, he calls to be his witnesses in the world. Too often, we think that we need to be perfect to have a significant role in the kingdom. I think the texts tell us otherwise. And I'll say this even. I think we misrepresent our role in the kingdom as witnesses when we pretend we need to be perfect. Because otherwise, what you're offering the world is a sense of rules and a sense of expectations that they need to be amazing, when in fact, what we're offering is the grace of God, not our perfection. And we actually undermine the gospel when we are not willing to embrace the grace of God, our own brokenness, on the witness journey. The gospel was never get your act together. The gospel was always God's grace, God's initiative, God's call of you and me to be participants in his story. Practically, I would say this. Identify three people in your life and just ask God, what is it that these three people that are in my life need from you, God? My guess is what they don't need is your perfection. And allow it to be a time with Jesus where he shapes your mission in the world, not based on your perfection, but on his grace to people in your life. It was a 10-minute exercise. Try it. All right, the last one is this. Um, it's sort of this dynamic between distancing and attending or attention. Now, this is, I, I'm going to speak to a slightly different group of people at this moment, so I'm going to shift a little bit. There is also the reality that some of us experience prolonged doubt in our journey. If you are going to follow Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years, there is going to be a season, I can almost guarantee it, where you will go through a season of prolonged sense of where is God in this. And what you see when you start reading sort of the lives of the saints, the lives of faithful people that go before us, is that actually God uses this to transform us. There's a guy named Ignatius of Loyola, and he says that there are seasons of consolation and desolation. And that consolation is great. It's the time when we experience the presence of God. We feel his presence. We feel awesome. We're like, yes, 
And then there's seasons of desolation when we experience the absence of God. And God uses the seasons of desolation so that we can learn how to choose him even when we don't feel awesome about it. The key, though, and I, and I know this personally. I remember uh, when my mom was really ill in my 20s, I uh, just was rocked by it. I was, all I could see was my own disappointment in God's absence and inaction to heal my mother. And all I did, I just ate that doubt day in and day out. And looking back, I see God's presence through that season. I see actually how God was there, how he just totally destroyed some of my pride and self-reliance in that season. But I also realized that I wish someone had come to me and said, you know, Tony, like, there are going to be seasons that are hard, but don't just chew on your doubt all day. Now, I'm going to show sort of a, a silly video, and it's an old video, so it's just, it is what it is. I just want you to pay, pay attention to it, and then I'll, um, I'll come back to it in a minute when it's done. Volume on? The volume has to, we have to replay it with the volume. Can you turn, start it over? we can't, I can just narrate the video. Huh? Okay, then just turn it off. So the way this video works is um, there's this attention exercise. It's just, can you turn it off? Thank you. Um, so it's this, it's this attention art. You see the basic exercise. So there's these people in black shirts and people in white shirts. And the study is what you're supposed to do is pay attention to the number of times the people with the black shirts pass the ball. And so what you do is you watch and you count. And then at the end of the video, he says, how many times did you count, right? And then he says, did you notice the gorilla? And you're like, first time I saw this, I was like, what, gorilla? And then they replay the video. And now that you're looking for it, what you see is a gorilla walking through the middle of the basketball players that you didn't see the first time. And the reason you didn't see it is because your mind was looking for the basketball and you miss the gorilla walking right through the scene. And the reason I wanted to show this silly video is I think we do this with God all the time. And especially in seasons of ongoing and prolonged doubt that all we start seeing is the doubt and we miss the surprising presence of God walking through the experience. So what I would encourage you to do if you are in a season of extended doubt is just each day take a journal and just have a time, even three minutes. God, how did I see you present to me even if I didn't see you the first time through? Maybe you do it in the evening, and it's just a way of saying, God, I want to look for your presence, even if I don't feel it or sense it the first time through the day. Now, with that said, I want us to uh, enter into communion. Through historically in church history, uh, communion has been one of the most profound times when people encounter 
the risen Jesus, right? On the, the road to Emmaus, the, there's these two guys that are walking with Jesus and they're talking with him and their hearts are warmed, but it's not until they break bread with him that they see him. So on that Thursday night, before they betray him, Jesus says to them, picks up the bread, gives thanks for him, and says, this is my body broken for you. Knowing that they will betray him, knowing that they will doubt his resurrection, knowing that they will be trapped in their own fear, he says, this is my body, I give it to you. And he grabs some wine at the table, gives thanks for it, and he says, this is my blood. Is shed for you so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. He knows that he will die on a cross. He knows that they will abandon him. And yet, he says, take and drink because he wants them to experience his life. What we're going to do as we invite the worship team up, as we enter into worship, I would just invite you to just sort of sit for a moment in God's offer of grace this morning. I think this is even a time for just confessing to God ways that we are trusting in our own abilities, in our own wisdom, in our own performance, rather than just saying, God, it's all about you. So as we enter into worship, I just invite you to just take a moment with Jesus. And if this is a moment just to be with him and weep in his presence, so be it. If this is a moment of joy for you at the ways he has been present to you, rock it, enjoy it. Communion is a time when we really try and draw near to Jesus and he draws near to us. I'm going to pray for us. God, I thank you just for your presence among us. God, I thank you for your goodness. God, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would draw near to us in our place of vulnerability, in our places of fear. God, you would give us eyes to see ourselves the way you see us as broken creatures in need of a gracious and kind God, as little children in need of a good father. If you're serving communion, if you could come up to, that would be great.